0: Okay, it's good to see everybody today. For those of you who I don't know, my name's Josh. My family and I have been attending here at Emmaus for about a year and a half. We sit in the back row. I'm up here today representing the back row. We sit in the back row, not out of necessity, but out of choice. Early, I still sit in the back row. But I did think about this this morning, that it's kind of odd that when I'm in here, I'm either all the way in the back or I'm up here. There's never anything in between. I need to figure that out. So anyway, we're going to be continuing in our study of Hebrews today. And didn't Vanilla do a great job laying the foundation for us last week? So we're going to be continuing um, into Hebrews chapter 2 today, um, verses 5 through 9. And um, we're going to read this passage together, and then I'm going to kind of depart from it and eventually come back. Now, I will say this. I am going to be reading from my notes a lot more than um, I normally would. And that might be interesting because it's kind of dark in here and I'm wearing my wife's reading glasses. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. This is totally off topic. Can I say something that's totally off topic? I'll get back, I promise. So so middle school boys, I'm going to say this because I have a middle school boy. He's not in here right now, so I can say this about him. Boys go from like this time when they don't need deodorant to this time where all of a sudden they're wearing deodorant. But what you don't know unless you've raised a middle school boy, anybody in here ever raised a middle school boy, there's a transition period. And it's usually like sixth grade where you need deodorant now, but you've not yet embraced the reality that you need deodorant. You're still trying to hang on to the innocence. You know what I mean? But the innocence is starting to get funky. And so I am, I say that because I am like the, the middle age equivalent of that is, um, so I'm 45, and I need reading glasses. But I refuse to accept the reality that I need reading glasses. So then when I'm in a jam, I have to borrow my wife's reading glasses. That's where I am. So, okay. I need to, what was that? <laughs> I really need to behave, I'm sorry. Okay. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. God didn't put the world that is coming, the world that we are talking about, under the angels' control. Instead, someone declared somewhere, what is humanity that you think about them? Or what is the human being, the son of man, that you care about them? For a while you made them lower than the angels. You crowned the human being with glory and honor. You put everything under their control. When he puts everything under their control, he doesn't leave anything out. But right now, we do not yet see everything under their control. However, we do see the one who was made lower in order than the angels for a little while. It is Jesus. He is the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. Let me say that. read that last line again. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. As we learned last week, this letter was likely written to a group of Jewish Christians or possibly Christians who were thinking about converting to Judaism. Now, why would they do that? Why would, um, why would there be Christians in the first century who were thinking about converting to Judaism or Jewish Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism? That was going on in the first century. And the reason for that is because the Jewish people were so well-established, they'd been around for such a long time within the Roman Empire, that their religion had a measure of protection that Christianity didn't have because Christianity was like the new kid on the block. And people still didn't really understand what was going on with Christianity and were really honestly very suspicious of it. And so there were... uh, Jewish Christians and perhaps even Christians who never were Jews who were thinking about converting to Judaism out of their concern for physical safety because they felt like it was physically safer for them to be Jewish than for them to be Christian. And so the writer of this letter, we're hoping that Vania would reveal it after 2,000 years last week, but she didn't. We, we, We do not know who wrote the letter. But the writer of this letter, which is actually perhaps a sermon, is trying to communicate to these individuals that actually Jesus, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the hopes of Judaism. He is the fulfillment of all of the hopes of the Jewish people. Therefore, the truly safer thing, even though it may cost you in the short term, the truly safer thing is actually to keep your focus on Jesus to not worry about the trappings of this religion or that religion, but just to keep yourself, to keep your life centered on Jesus is actually the safer thing. It's actually the only thing that makes sense because Jesus fulfills all of these hopes. So he doesn't want them to go back into um, a a yoke of religious bondage that them had carried into this new faith. So there are primarily two questions that the, the author of this letter or the preacher of the sermon, whichever way you look at it, is trying to address. The first question is, who is Jesus? Which is the most important question. And y'all, if I may say, and I can't see y'all when I have these on. If I may say, like, that is a question that you can never fully answer. And it's something that as we continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus, this question of who is Jesus will continue to get to deeper and deeper levels of that answer as we experience him. Because you can't really answer that question with information. In other words, I can't give you the answer to that question. You kind of have to meet him. You have to experience him. You have to have a relationship with him. And as you have a relationship with him, and as your relationship with him grows, your understanding of who he is deepens. So this is the primary uh, question that the author is trying to answer. And then the second goes along with it, which is what did he do for us? Who is Jesus and what did he do for us? Laura, I don't think these glasses are working out too well. I'm going to wing it. So I'm going to say some things today that probably won't make any sense, rationally speaking, and I do that sometimes, but it feels right. There are going to be some things that you hear that you're going to be like, that doesn't make any sense, but just think about, does it feel right? It feels right, doesn't it? And just go with it. So these two questions, who is Jesus and what did he do for us? We have to understand who Jesus is before we can understand what Jesus did. Because Jesus had to be who he was in order to do what he did. In other words, I could do what Jesus did, but it probably wouldn't do a whole lot for you because I'm not who Jesus was. So we first and foremost have to, uh, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning focusing on that question of who is Jesus. And then it's easy to see, okay, this is what he did. There's an inextricable, inextricable connection between who Jesus was and what he did. His identity and his action are tied together. If he wasn't who he was, then he couldn't have done what he did. And if he didn't do what he did, he wouldn't have been who he was. See, that doesn't make sense, does it? But yet it does. If he didn't do what he did, if he hadn't done the things that he did, on our behalf, and he wouldn't have truly been who he was. His identity, really in essence, is tied up in what he did for us. So, who was he? Who was Jesus? And maybe just, uh, maybe just let's let that question marinate for a second, because I'm going to try to venture an answer to that, but admittedly, my answer is going to be incomplete. But just maybe sit with that for a second. Who is Jesus? And as you think about that question and continue through your life, hopefully, to wrestle with that question, let me give you this encouragement to not, I mean, you you answer that question the way you want. But don't just regurgitate what somebody else told you about him. Don't give me facts. Who is Jesus? And let that answer flow out of your experience of him. Because as you experience him more, then you're going to have deeper insights about who he is. We learned last week that Jesus is the exact image of God's heart. And what is perhaps most important for us Jesus serves as the point of connection. Y'all say connection. Connection. Okay, this is going to be important, understanding this. He serves as the point of connection between the creator and his creation. Jesus is the conduit through whom God communicates to his people. He's the channel through whom God reveals himself to his people. So in other words, if there were no Jesus, God might be speaking to us, but we would never hear what he was saying. Because Jesus is the channel through whom God communicates. And he is also the channel through whom we communicate with God. We come to God in the name of Jesus. Right? And God comes to us in the name of Jesus. He is this channel. He is this means of connection and revelation through whom We and God communicate back and forth. The connection between the creator and the creation. There are a a few New Testament passages that really do a good job of revealing this reality. And I don't have them up, but they're easy to remember because they're all ones. The first one we're going to read is a familiar one. This is from John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, and so as I read these passages again, just think about Jesus being the connection through, through whom God reveals himself to us, through whom we communicate with God. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was the, anybody know the Greek word for that? Logos, a bunch of y'all do. In the beginning was the Logos. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish the light. All right, the second passage that follows the same idea comes from the book of Colossians, also chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Because all things were created through him, both in the heavens and on the earth, things that are seen and things that are unseen. Whether they be thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The Son existed before all things, and all things are held together in Him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that He might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in Him. And He reconciled all things to Himself through Him, Whether things on the earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. And then the last passage is right here back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Again, communicating this very same idea about who Jesus is. And this is important because this is actually how the author of Hebrews starts off the letter slash sermon. In the past, God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and in many ways. But in these final days, he has spoken to us through a son. God made his son the heir of everything, and he created the world through him. Now, this idea of a connecting point or of a channel of revelation between the creator and the creation did not originate, with the writers of the New Testament. In fact, it was the Greek philosophers who first had this idea of the Logos, of this kind of in-between reality, this reality that exists between the creator and the creation through whom the creator and the creation communicate with each other. Y'all with me? Okay, but the, the writers of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit heard that, right? heard that and understood that that was going on and understood in other places, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were able to say, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the actual embodiment of this existential reality. Jesus is the connection between God and his people. Jesus is the channel not only of revelation but Jesus is also the channel of reconciliation. He is the one through whom God communicates to us and he is also the one through whom God reaches through and brings us back to himself. Jesus is the connecting point. Okay, so I've told y'all before, if y'all have heard me speak before, there's always a moment in my sermons where it goes off the rails. Y'all are y'all probably like, this thing was off the rails from the start. No, it wasn't. You thought it was, but it was securely on the rails. This is the point where it goes off the rails. So let me give you this disclaimer. And I thought about how to word this disclaimer in some kind of like a flowery, poetic way, but I'm just going to say it. I'm about to read y'all a quote from a Muslim. That's the disclaimer, okay? So there is a uh, a Muslim philosopher by the name of Ibn Barajan who lived back in the 12th century, 13th century, I think. And he talks about this same reality, this reality that the Greeks refer to as logos, which he refers to as the universal servant. Let me just say this. There are a lot of really good, Muslim philosophers that we can learn from. In the same way that we can learn from Jewish philosophers, because even though, of course, we're going to disagree when it comes to Jesus, because we trace our roots back to Abrahamic monotheism. Y'all with me? We trace our roots back to Abraham and the monotheism that originated with Abraham. There's a basic worldview that is the same. And so therefore, there's a lot for us to learn. So Ibn Barajan talks about this reality, this connecting point, this point of revelation and reconciliation, and he refers to it as the universal servant. So I'm going to read this quote. No, I didn't get this quote put up on the screen because I'm a lazy person. Um, So I'm going to read this quote nice and slow. I might go back through and read parts of it over again so that we can get a better understanding of who uh, Jesus is as the manifestation of this universal servant. As a unifying metacosmic entity, the universal servant contains all realities of creation and man. The universal servant is the one who emerges from the one. Say that again. The universal servant is the one who emerges from the one and by virtue of its all-embracing oneness encompasses all existent things. At root, the universal servant is comparable to the very first rays that emerge from the sun. These initial rays are so close to the sun. They are so close to the source of light that they cannot or excuse me, that they resist clear-cut categorization. We can't tell if they are pure sun or pure ray. Ooh, that's good. There's more, there's more. <laughs> the incomprehensible, ontological in-betweenness of the universal servant stands as a solution to the philosophical conundrum. Y'all say conundrum. Conundrum. I don't know why, but okay. Of how the one can reveal himself to the many. In other words, if God is one and we are many, how in the world, how in the world can we have a relationship with him? If he is transcendent and we are bound by time. If he is immortal and we are mortal. How can we have a relationship with him? And so what Ibn Barajan is saying is this idea, this understanding that comes just by a flash of intuition of the universal servant answers all of those questions. Now, the beauty of it is we can take it a step further and say Jesus is the universal servant. I mean, you can't hear that and not think about John 1. This is who Jesus is. This universal servant, this entity came to life and walked around And communicated with us. And did things and said things. That we can have an actual. Personal relationship. With this universal servant. The universal servant is comparable to the very first rays. That emerge from the sun. These initial rays are so close. To the source of light that they resist clear cut categorization. So. Here, I think, is a mistake that we make sometimes. We try so hard, and when I say we, I'm saying myself too because I do this all the time. We want so bad to define Jesus. We want to know what in the world box does he fit in. Does he fit in this box? Does he fit in that box? Maybe he fits in both of these boxes over here. But then we get confused. We're trying so hard to categorize him, and we were never commanded to do that. We were never commanded to understand him or to be able to explain him. What we are commanded to do, what I would say in a more positive way, what we are invited to do is encounter him. To encounter him, to experience him, and to follow him. Those are the only three things that you have to do with Jesus. And sometimes this this urge to categorize and this urge to understand stands in the way and keeps us from doing what Jesus actually calls upon us to do. It keeps us from encountering him because we'd rather understand him than encounter him. Anybody? Because that feels safer. That kind of gives me a sense of control. Oh, I know who he is. I understand who he is. Well, he didn't ask you to do that, and no, you don't. And, and sometimes at this, this illusion that we understand him or this, this striving and straining to understand him keeps us from actually pursuing him and encountering him and getting to know him on a deeper level and, might I add, becoming more like him. These are the things that he calls upon us to do. While uh, Jesus could never be defined I believe this idea of in-betweenness so beautifully describes who he is. In this sense, Jesus defies category. And any attempt that we make to categorize him is ultimately a disservice to his true nature, which is beyond categorization. Now, let me give you all an example of this, okay? Okay. I was thinking about this the other day, and it blew my mind. And I'm going to share it with y'all because I don't want to be the only one in here with a mind blown. It doesn't take much to blow my mind, by the way. So so my wife and I and our kids, we have a house, right? Some of y'all have been to that house. And then we have neighbors. Anybody have neighbors? Okay, so if you have neighbors, you have a property line. So our property line is really cool. It's this really short, old stone wall that divides... Our property from our neighbor's property. Okay, everybody with me? So, <laughs> on this side, it's our property, right? On that side of the wall, it's their property. My question is who owns the wall? And this is actually a real thing, too, because, like, it's one of those really old stone, like, these are houses that were built back in the 1930s. It's a really old stone wall, and there's this cool stone flower pot that goes with the wall. And so we're like, nobody's ever come out and asked, whose flower pot is that? You know, because I feel like we put flowers in there, but then I saw them watering the flowers, and I'm like, I thought those were our flowers. Who, Who owns, whose wall is this? And, of course, the only, there is no satisfying answer to that question, but the only answer is you kind of both own it and you kind of neither, neither one of you. It's on your property and it's on your property, but it's also on neither one of you's property. It's a, it, it, the wall sort of represents this in-between state. There's an in-betweenness to the wall, Right? And we could see the wall in the way that I'm even phrasing it is as a divider, but it's actually not a divider. It's actually a point of connection. Isn't it? Because I'm thinking of this is mine and that's yours. We look at it as a division, but it actually is the place, the wall is the place where our property and their property come together. This in-betweenness, this in this undefinable essence of in-betweenness, this is who Jesus is when it comes to our relationship with God. And I don't know who owns the wall. Both and neither. If we have to put him in a category, y'all, just make his category Jesus. He's just got his own, he's the only one in there. Jesus is his category And his task, the thing that he exists to do is to bring us together with God. He's an expression of God's love for us, an expression of God's desire to commune with us and an expression of God's longing and his power to bring us back into his heart. This is who Jesus is. Now, very quickly, I promise. I want to just kind of, Not go any further in talking about who Jesus is because I'm going to get into definitions. So just take what you've heard and kind of let that simmer a little bit. Continue to turn it over. What feels right. Does this resonate with my experience with Jesus? Does this resonate with who Scripture reveals Jesus to be. So let's go back to this passage in Hebrews chapter two, and I'm just going to read verse nine because th- we're going to very quickly talk about what Jesus did. Again, because once you have some sense of who Jesus is, uh, it's, it's very easy to see what Jesus did, or easy easier to accept. I should say. So verse 9 here in chapter 2 says, However, we do see the one who was made lower than the angels for a little while. It is Jesus. He is the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. Because Jesus is who Jesus is, he was able to do what no one else could do. Which is to taste death on our behalf as a way of reconnecting us with God. Don't ever lose sight of that. That is why Jesus tasted death. That is why Jesus went through death, through the process of death and resurrection. He did all of this so that we could be reconnected with God. Jesus overcame death on our behalf by blazing a trail through death. And he calls for us, y'all, to follow him on this path. The way to the Father's heart leads through death. But Jesus has cleared the path. I'll even go you one better. Jesus is the path. Jesus is the path through death. Jesus is the path through all of our suffering. Jesus is the path through all of our trial and tribulation. He is the path that reconnects us to God through all of this stuff. He didn't go around anything. He didn't go under anything. He didn't go above anything. He went through it. He went through death and in so doing undid death from the inside. My prayer and my hope for each of us is that we will be willing to trust in who Jesus is so that we can follow where Jesus leads. To trust in who Jesus is so that we can follow where he leads, even if that means entering into death. And all of us, y'all, as followers of Jesus Christ are called, are commissioned, are deputized to enter into death. To go through death. Anytime you put another person before yourself, you enter into death. When you decide Over and over again, because this is not a decision that can be made once, but when you decide that you're going to live your life in the service of the bigger picture, instead of your small picture, you enter into death. Maybe not physical death, but there's a death of ego. There's a death to self that happens. When you sacrifice what feels good for the sake of what is good, You enter into death. But for any of you who have ever tried it, what you find out is that we're we're, we're just really bad at distinguishing between life and death. So what we think is going to give us life oftentimes actually doesn't give us life. And what looks like death to us, like Jesus is calling us into this place, or he's calling us to this sacrifice, or he's calling us through this trial, it looks like death, but it's actually abundant life. It's actually true life. It's actually joyful life, the life that God intended for us to receive and participate in. But we have to be willing to keep our eyes on Jesus and to follow him through these places of death into life, back into the heart of the Father. As we close this morning, I'm going to invite you, if you can, to stand. And um, here's what I want to do. I really appreciate y'all being patient with me. Hope this wasn't too confusing. I want to, um, if you want to kind of take on a posture of prayer, if we want to Close your eyes, bow your head, however that looks for you. You can open your hands um, as a sign of receptivity. But I want to read this passage from the Gospel of Matthew. I just want to read it over you as we think about who Jesus is, as he's revealed through uh, the writer to the Hebrews, and as we think about what he did and realize that only he could do what he did. Only he could do what he did. And now what is it that he calls us to do? I want to read this over you and then I'm going to pray for us. This is from Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Hear now the words of Jesus. Jesus said unto his disciples, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. They must take up their cross and follow behind me. All who want to save their life will lose their life. But anyone who loses their life because of me will find their life. Father God, we come to you today in the name of Jesus who is the channel of revelation, the channel of reconciliation in this place of connection. We thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We recognize him today as our savior, as the one who delivers us and as the one who heals us from whatever ails us. Help us today, I pray, to have a clearer vision of Jesus. Help me to have a clearer vision of who he is because it's in seeing who he is that we see who we are supposed to be. It's in seeing who he is that we see the love that you have for us in your heart, Father. Help us to see him. Help us to follow him. Help us to become like him. Help us to join him in your heart. pray for each person in this room. I pray for your blessing, for your protection. Pray for your deliverance, for your healing. We pray that you would shine the light on the path of life and give us the courage to keep our feet upon that path for the coming of your kingdom upon the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you want to take a seat for a second, you can as we transition into our response.